Hello, and welcome to What Happens Next, Week 14. My name is Larry Bernstein. Each week since the outbreak of the pandemic, I have hosted a conference call to discuss the implications of COVID-19. The discussion follows a unique format. Each speaker only gets six minutes. This keeps the conversation concise, interesting, and punchy. After everyone has had a chance to speak, there is a question and answer period. I end the session with a quick note of optimism for each speaker. Let me start by wishing my dad a happy Father's Day. Since it is a holiday, I've decided to reduce the number of speakers so we can shorten the call to spend more time with family. On today's call, we're going to hear from five different speakers. Our first speaker is Robin Greenwood, who is a personal friend of mine, as well as a professor of finance and banking at Harvard Business School. Robin will be speaking about his latest work on how to avoid bankruptcy by proposing that the federal government subsidize certain lease modifications to keep small businesses solvent. Next up is Greg Marcus, who is president of the Marcus Corporation, which is an operator of hotels and movie theaters. These are two industries that have been under enormous pressure because of COVID, and I wanted to hear Greg's plans on how to open up these operations and hear about the ongoing challenges. Bob Margo is a professor of economics at Boston University and one of the academic leaders in economic history. Bob will discuss his article on the impact of housing values that affected from the 1960s riots. James Dankert is a professor of psychology at the University of Waterloo in Canada. He is the author of a book that was released in the last few days entitled Out of My Skull, The Psychology of Boredom. I've asked James to explain why a loss of agency creates boredom and why being bored leads to bad and risky behavior. I want James to explain why the lockdown might have generated, uh, might have been boring and thus created the power keg that fueled the city riots. Our final speaker is retired U.S. Army General Paul Kern. Paul has worn many hats over his 38-year career with the U.S. Army, including being the Commander General of the Army Material Command, managing 50,000 personnel worldwide. Paul previously led the military's internal investigation into the abuses at Abu Ghraib prison. He began his career as a platoon leader and troop commander in Vietnam. I've asked Paul to discuss the role of the military to quell civilian unrest in U.S. cities. In particular, I want to know about the legality of the military role, how the Army has trained for this sort of operation in the past, and how successful the Army has been in preventing rioting and loss of property and life. Finally, I want to hear about what lessons can be learned from the successful reforms of the military after Vietnam and what can be applied to reform our local police departments. The Chatham House rules apply for this discussion, and this call is being recorded. Let's get started with our first speaker, Robin Greenwood. Robin, fire away. Thanks, Larry, for having me on. So I'm going to talk about bankruptcy and financial distress, and I'm going to make my comments in two parts. The first part is to diagnose the problem. And then the second part is I will talk about some potential solutions uh, that have been put out there. So if you, if you think about the first phase of the crisis, the government has largely focused on things that they can do to uh, reduce the spread of the virus and then to help businesses and households that are directly economically impacted by the lockdowns. And the next phase of the crisis, uh, even as businesses come out of uh, the lockdowns, they're going to struggle to pay debts and other claims. And this is going to vary enormously by industry. On, on this call, we have seen or heard many uh, businesses talk about their particular issues, but it's going to be uh, particularly problematic in small businesses and in competitive industries. Um, of course, the, and the amount and arrival time of the financial distress or bankruptcy is going to depend on exactly what the government does. And something that a lot of people don't know is that in the first phase of the crisis, bankruptcy filings were actually down. So 
there were 2,017 business bankruptcies in April of 2019 compared to only 1,700 uh, in, uh, and then only 1,700 in April of 2020. Um, consumer filings were down even more. Um, and, you know, given what we know about unemployment and business shutdowns, this is surely just calm before the storm. So just to put some numbers on this, historically, 1 million unemployment claims yielded 1,900 additional business filings and 58,000 additional consumer filings. And you could just do a simple plot of unemployment and bankruptcy filings, and it's just an unbelievably strong correlation. So back-of-the-envelope type number would be um, that the 33.4 million unemployment claims would lead to 63,500 business bankruptcies and 2 million consumer bankruptcies. So just to get a sense of what that could imply, uh, at a minimum, we give you some court congestion. So this would put us at about 40% over the peak caseload seen in 2010. So this will give you something like 70 hours of work per week per bankruptcy judge year. Um, the other thing you're going to see is that typically when courts are overloaded, they tend to favor liquidation. So in a normal recession, you see about a 50% increase in bankruptcy caseload. And if you extrapolate from that, uh, we're likely to see uh, additional debt holder losses of 32 percentage points uh, relative to a base rate loss of, of 36 percentage points. Uh, and, you know, so we're looking at a possibly a 150 percent increase uh, in, in the caseload. And things are actually even worse than that. Even if firms aren't bankrupt, many firms are going to have considerable debt overhang, and that could have potentially um, uh, similar adverse effects uh, macroeconomically in terms of investment and, and employment. place you can track all this, uh, we've heard about this, I think, on this call, is this weekly survey from the census. So since March, about 50% of the firms in some industries have been late on at least one, uh, one payment. So, you know, gr the great thing is that we have a system in the United States for restructuring debts. It's called the Chapter 11 system. Um, you know, one of the things that the Chapter 11 system tries to do is distinguish between viable firms and uh, non-viable firms. And the other thing I you know, like to talk about always when we think about bankruptcy, and this is, I'm sure, dear to uh, Larry's heart uh, being in Chicago, is the Coase Theorem. And for those of you who haven't heard of the Coase Theorem, it basically guarantees that when you have a dispute between two parties, as long as the property rights are well-defined, you could figure out a sharing rule to avoid the distress. Um, and, you know, the intuition here is that removing financial distress will create value that could be shared with everybody. So just think of, like, a restaurant that's undergoing some stress and, um, you know, needs to renegotiate with their, their landlord. So for reasons that I think are pretty obvious, we think of this is probably not working so well in the current environment. There's more uncertainty. Markets are frozen. Uh, the shocks are correlated. And then there's spillovers between firms. So let me turn to potential proposals. So uh, two types of proposals. One is to think about uh, improving out-of-court restructuring. This is the uh, document that I circulated. Uh, the essence of this idea is that the government essentially creates a standardized master agreement. It's one-size-fits-all, but it's opt-in, so you don't have to do it. And consider the restaurant where the, um, with the landlord. Both the restaurant and the landlord sign. It becomes an appendix to an existing contract. The landlord gets a tax credit worth some fraction of the forgiven loan. And the basic idea is this is going to reduce a bunch of haggling over terms. It's a take-it-or-leave-it offer. You know, potential concerns is that you could end up subsidizing low-productivity firms. Of course, no matter how good you are at inducing 
private solutions, we're still going to get lots of bankruptcies, so you also want to think about what you can do in court. So a um, couple things that the government can do here. They could provide funding for bankrupt firms, as in the GM and Chrysler bankruptcies. Um, for example, you can provide more facilities for debtor and possession financing. You can increase court resources by hiring more judges and trustees. Um, there's a bankruptcy working group, actually, that has been pushing for this pretty aggressively. Um, and then the new bankruptcy law also um, plays a, a useful role here. Last thing I'll say is thinking through the bankruptcy problem is that you want to do it in conjunction with uh, thinking through the health of the banks. Because um, if you make bankruptcy easier, that has implications for lenders. And um, that may, uh, and then you want to think about the health of those lenders because the health of those lenders ultimately will. Uh, also impact the economy. So there's a little bit of a uh, uh, chicken and egg issue here with uh, both the bank side and uh, on the bankruptcy reform side. I'll stop there. Okay, great. Um, okay, Robin, I'll come back to you in a minute. Um, in the meantime, uh, let's start with Greg Marcus and hear about hotels and movie theaters. Greg, fire away. Okay, thanks, Larry. Um, you know, as you said, uh, the, our company, the Marcus Corporation, we operate in two lines of businesses, hotels and movie theaters, and you probably couldn't pick uh, two more challenging businesses in the pandemic. You know, our businesses are uh, built based on the idea of people getting together, public congregation, which is the absolute opposite of what you're doing in a pandemic. So uh, that obviously leads to significant challenges. Um, you know, we have uh, we've gone to zero revenues. Our annualized revenues last year, 800 million, were zero now. Um, now it's coming back as we start to think about getting open, and I'll get to that in a minute. But I want to talk about sort of the end and the beginning at the same time, I think. And the end and the beginning is, is that I just think it's important to remember, and I don't believe the human mentality has changed. Humans essentially want to be together. And they want to do things together. Uh, and will it be the exact same levels? I don't know. And will it be? Will there be changes? Yes, there'll be changes. But it's at their core, they want to be together. And I can only point to what happened right before we had to close. And this was right around the 13th of March. We um, the that was the Friday, so it was like probably around the 9th. In both of our businesses, I saw something was just amazing. So it wasn't a secret. The world was completely going upside down, and. Uh, and we have a thing called $5 Tuesdays in our movie theaters. Very, very popular. It's like a Saturday night in terms of attendance, obviously not in terms of revenue, uh, but, but very, very popular day of the week for us. We do a free popcorn with every admission uh, for $5. And we normally will sell between, I'll say, 150 and 200,000 tickets on a given Saturday, I'm mean, sorry, on a given Tuesday. And the, the Tuesday before everything shut down, Literally, three days before, we sold 20,000 tickets. 20,000 people wanted to go to the movies in the middle of all of this. And uh, I, I, it was crazy. I was shocked. I couldn't believe we sold that many. Now, we actually closed that Tuesday, and they didn't come. But they, it showed, it reminded me, people want to be together. And on a similar scale, you know, we own a hotel in Milwaukee. If you've been there, called the Fister. We have a bar at the top of the hotel. And we have meeting rooms up there. We were having a meeting. I think it was that Monday. And right before all that happened, we had a and we had the meeting. And we walked out of the meeting. And I said, gee, I want to see if anybody's in our bar because who'd be in our bar? The, 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 this is, we're, in the, about this, we're in the middle of a health emergency. And believe it or not, the bar, pretty full. People want to be together. And so that's the end of the story, too, because I don't know what it's going to look at. At the end, probably we need a vaccine or effective treatment. 
but people will still want to go to the movies. People will still want to go to restaurants. People will still want to stay in hotels. They're going to want to travel. It will be that way again. Uh, but it's just going to, the question is how long is it going to take? Um, the to talking to go about opening the two businesses and we are now right in the process of starting to reopen. Um, we have, uh, Three of our hotels are open. We have eight hotels uh, in eight different in eight states. We actually operate twenty hotels, and we actually count some of the managed ones. We own eight. We manage another eleven. Uh, two of the managed hotels are open, and uh, and then the, and we've opened three of our owned hotels. Um, it's slow. Our our hotels are in the upper upscale segment, so we're talking. You know, we're just a step below luxury. So we're not Four Seasons, we're not Ritz Carlton's, we're you know Hilton's and uh, Marriott, and and we have a full resort in Lake Geneva, just outside of Chicago, in Chicago and Milwaukee, called the Grand Geneva. You know, uh, two golf courses, that kind of thing. Um, the Fister in Milwaukee, as I said. So high end hotels, all based on business travel and group travel. Um, the Grand Geneva, a little bit leisure travel uh, because it was um, because right, and that's the only travel that's out there right now. Leisure travel is the only thing. There are no businesses sending anybody out. Nobody's getting married right now. There's no weddings. There's you know, there's none of the social stuff is going on. The galas, that kind of thing. So we are open to try and pick up whatever leisure business is out there. And it's we want to try and get open. And frankly, our goal is to lose less than being closed. And uh, we are about a low to no contact experience. It's really that way for both of our businesses. And you want to be able to check it. You want to come in and check in on your phone. We're utilizing technology. You know, the room is cleaned. So we put a sticker. We use the Marcus Clean Care Pledge. And uh, we've got a whole process for cleaning and sanitizing the rooms. You come to the hotel. You check in online on your phone. You get your key or your phone is your key in certain instances, depending on the property. And you uh, and you go to your room. We have the bar. The, the restaurant is open, but our amenities are limited, and we're doing all the things with social distancing. The staff is all uh, wearing PPE, and we're doing our best to create an environment that people feel is safe. Uh, and uh, that's that's the goal, and really both our businesses. And then now getting to the theaters. The theaters, you would think, you know um, – Oh, theaters. That's like going to a concert. That's like going to a, 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 a sporting event. Well, actually, not really. The theaters are very different because we really can control the traffic pretty easily by setting show times. We keep the number of people in every auditorium. Uh, you know, we're down to we're basically half, two seats on, two seats off. So we create social distancing in the auditoriums. Again, low to no contact. Exp- oh, because we have, the reason I say that is our rows are seven feet apart because virtually all of our theaters have recliner seats. Uh, so you're seven feet of depth, and then you put two seats in between. You create six feet in between people, and you uh, a checkerboard style the seating, and you create social distancing in that regard. We're trying to use technology again, low to no contact. You order your tickets on the phone. You can go to a box office if you want to, but frankly, we are, we're trying to push everybody to order their tickets on the phone. They can order their concessions on the phone. So you don't have to go stand in the concession line. You walk up to a pickup area, you pick up your food in a bag, and you walk into the theater. The seat has been sanitized, and uh, and there's wipes everywhere. If you want to take a wipe in so you can recline and you can touch it if you're uncomfortable touching it. And uh, and we feel that that is, uh, is, is we're, we're using that as a way to give our customers confidence again. And you, uh, you don't talk. You don't cheer. You don't sing. It's not like being in church or, or, or synagogue. You 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 are there just passively enjoying the getting away for a couple hours. And 
So there was a study on LN.NES that I read about in Quartz Magazine that was done in Japan. They couldn't trace any outbreaks to a movie theater because, again, the atmosphere is really very different than anything else. So with that, I will, my time is up. Thank you, Craig. All right, uh, Bob, you're next. Thank you. Okay, uh, I want to thank Larry Bernstein for inviting me. This is my first uh, time here, uh, and a happy Father's Day to everyone uh, on the line. Uh, just a brief introduction. I'm a cleometrician. That's a made-up word for economic historian who uses the technical tools of economics, its theory, its statistics, to study the history of the American economy. And most of my work is on the long-run evolution of racial inequality, so differences between uh, blacks and whites in income, wealth, education, and health. And I'm going to talk today about the paper that Larry circulated, which is a paper published in 2007, uh, co-authored with uh, Bill Collins of Vanderbilt, called The Economic Aftermath of the 1960s Riots, Evidence from Property Values. So there are really two motivations for this paper. Um, the first is, is that the 1960s, 70s, and 80s were a period of urban economic decline in the United States. Um, around 1970 was the peak of racial segregation in housing in the 20th century, and much of that was central cities versus suburbs. And many urban historians have um, pointed to uh, riots in the 1960s as a factor in urban decline, uh, but the evidence that's uh, often presented is anecdotal, and what Collins and I are trying to do in this paper is to provide more systematic evidence. So the data that we use, um, we, our main outcome that we look at in this paper is on the uh, value of owner-occupied housing. And we uh, use data from uh, U.S. cities, uh, uh, from the uh, uh, federal census from 1950, 60, 70, and 80. Uh, we have a lot of information about riot severity, and that comes from work of sociologists. We have information on arrests, deaths, injuries, and arson. Uh, overall, there are about 750 riots in our data set. People are astonished at the number. Um, roughly uh, 200 deaths, about 13,000 injuries, 69,000 arrests, 16,000 cases of arson. Um, the peak year was in 1968, or right after the assassination of Martin Luther King. I'll summarize the main findings. I'm happy to talk in the Q&A about how we reached these findings. The most severe riot, so here you want to think of the top 10% of riot that falls in the top 10% of arrests, deaths, and so on, uh, reduces the median value of black-owned uh, housing by about 15% during the 1960s and by an additional 5% in the 1970s, so there's both a short and a long-run effect. If the riot is moderately severe, so not, not in the top 10%, it's about 6% in the short run and 10% in the long run. We also observe effects on overall city averages, not just on uh, property owned by African Americans. They're about half as large as those. And we do a simulation in the paper that shows that the aggregate impact in the United States as a whole is to reduce the overall value of African American uh, uh, owner-occupied housing by about 10% in 1970. So the question is, why did property values decline in response to a riot? And sort of basic economics would say there are, basically, there are two ways this could happen. One way it could happen would be through an increase uh, in housing supply. So supply could increase, and that would drive down price or value. Or you could get a decrease in housing demand. There's essentially no evidence whatsoever that this has anything to do with uh, changing uh, supply. It really has to do with 
a decrease in demand. And we sort of evaluate this more or less systematically for a couple cities, for five cities, all of which had had severe riots. So one of them was Detroit, for example, uh, where I happen to have grown up. And for each of these cities, we um, have collected uh, data from police records which show exactly which census tracts um, experienced uh, riot activity. And so we can compare population in, in uh, I'll call them riot tracts versus non-riot tracts uh, over time, and we see significant declines in the neighborhoods in which riots occurred um, between 1960 and 70 and then 70 uh, through 80. So that's, that's very clear to an economist, at least that's very clear evidence of a decrease in housing demand. There's also a lot of anecdotal evidence, I should say, of um, things that, that raise the cost of housing, sort of rising insurance rates in the aftermath of riots, uh, city bond ratings declined, and New York Times documented many examples of this during the period. And also cities that experienced riots uh, saw significant shifts in how they spent local funds, uh, funds increased on police, and less on, uh, on social services, uh, uh, housing, on education, and so on. And these things tend also to be associated with decreases in housing values. Um, in related work, uh, Collins and I have, have looked at the, the same set of issues, the same sort of effects on um, other economic outcomes, and I think uh, that Larry might uh, want to talk about this during the break, on um, incomes and employment finding similar negative effects. Um, I'll be happy during the Q&A if anybody, I can, I can speculate, obviously we don't have any idea whether the recent um, protest acts, protests we've seen in the United States will have anything similar to this, but um, I can certainly speculate about the post-1960 history of riots and their impact um, during the Q&A. Thanks. Great. Um, our next speaker is James Dinkert. He is a neuroscientist and a professor of psychology at the University of Waterloo in Canada. Uh, he has a new book out called Out of My Skull, uh, The Psychology of Boredom. James, take it away. Thanks very much, Larry. So I think the first thing to do is to define what I mean by boredom. And the thing I like to do um, is I turn to a quote from Leo Tolstoy, who says that boredom is a desire for desires. And there's a couple of important things about that. First, boredom isn't laziness or apathy. When we're bored, we're actually feeling a fairly intense motivation, a desire um, to be doing something and to be doing something that matters to us. But the true genius, I think, in the quote is that when we're bored, we want something to want. We feel pretty intensely the need to be engaged, but nothing that's right in front of us at the moment looks like it's going to do the trick. And if we think about that in terms of the past three months of lockdown and social isolation, you can see how boredom can become a pretty big issue for most, if not all of us. Whatever it is that we can think of doing, whatever it is that we might want to do in this moment, we're restricted from doing, and not by our own choice, but by the pandemic. And that brings me to the final piece of boredom that I would talk about, and that is that when we're bored, the reason why it feels so uncomfortable is that it's showing us up at that moment as being ineffective human beings. Psychologists would refer to this as a sense of agency. That is that we, we have a need to feel like we are the authors of our own actions, so that we choose to do the things that we're choosing to do. We're in control. And at the moment in the pandemic, it's just not so easy to achieve that sense of agency. So in a recent study that came out um, from Italy that asked people about what the worst things were about social isolation uh, during the worst of their outbreaks, the number one response was a loss of freedom. And the number two response was boredom. 
And I would suggest to you that the feelings of boredom were because of the loss of freedom, the loss of agency. Uh, we actually conducted a study ourselves where we asked about people's experiences during the pandemic, and we found that people who are highly prone to boredom were also more likely to break the rules of social distancing, even when it was at a cost to their own health. So the same people that broke the rules of the social sort of distancing protocols were more likely to contract COVID, um, which is a, a, as you might expect. So um, we, we've seen this kind of desire to, to act, to, to do something that matters to you um, in, in this uh, time of the pandemic, lead to some behaviours that we might not think are, are, are you know, the best behaviours that we could exhibit. We saw it initially in the protests uh, across America and other places of, uh, where people were sort of protesting the lockdown itself. I remember seeing on the news one woman saying she was desperately wanting to see her hairdresser to get rid of her grey roots. And, you know, my gut reaction to that was, you know, come on, that's hardly the most pressing of concerns. But I think what she was expressing was just that she really needed to be able to get out and act and be able to have some level of control in her life. Now, the more recent protest marches that we've seen in response to George Floyd are a different matter altogether. I wouldn't suggest that boredom has propelled people into, onto the streets in that instance. But it certainly is plausible that our frustration at three months of lockdown have amplified those efforts. Perhaps just the sheer volume of protesters would have been the same without the pandemic, but maybe the boredom of the past three months, born of all those restrictions on our capacity to act, has amplified them by giving so many people a meaningful thing to do when the past three months has been lacking in meaning so much. And it's certainly true that boredom has been blamed for rioting and looting in the past. The London riots of 2011 um, were an instance of that in which we asked people, particularly young males after those riots, why they joined in. And the most common answer was that they were doing so out of boredom. And if you think about it, if boredom is a threat to our sense of agency, then it makes sense that you would search for options to re-establish agency. And whether or not we think these acts of aggression are you know, morally defensible or not, these, these acts of aggression certainly work to re-establish your agency. When you destroy something, you know that your actions caused the destruction. And this highlights one other aspect of boredom, and that is that when we feel that we're bored, we feel like everything in front of us is lacking in meaning. Um, and if you sort of can instead sort of find some kind of cause to fight for, where, whatever that might be, then you can re-establish that sense of purpose and meaning, not just a sense of agency, but that sense of meaning. And there was an article by two sociologists in 2011 that raised the possibility that boredom could even open the door to war. Now, they're not suggesting that boredom causes war. That would be quite a stretch. But what they do suggest is that when the populace is bored, people search for avenues to re-establish meaning and purpose. And the possibility of fighting for king or country or the stars and stripes or whatever it might be for you seems like a reasonable way to achieve that sense of meaning and purpose. And yet the reality very rarely matches up with the expectations. And that's why we have this notion that soldiers often report of war being long stretches of boredom punctuated by sheer moments of terror. Um, and on top of that, we ask of soldiers a, a lot of busy work, keeping everything in, in order, polishing their boots to an impossible shine, all just to keep occupied in, in an attempt to sort of ward off boredom. So I've finished by just sort of saying that boredom is a really deeply uncomfortable experience, and it's one that is showing us that whatever we're doing right now is not satisfying in some important way. It's not meaningful, and it's not showing us that we are effective agents. Boredom itself is neither good nor bad, but it serves that purpose, pushing us to find an outlet that, that we think is going to be meaningful and that it establishes and showcases our own abilities as, as humans. 
it's how we respond to being bored that, that really matters. So I'll finish there. Okay, great. Um, our final speaker is retired General Paul Kern. Um, Paul, fire away. Thank you, Larry. Again, I'm, it's my first time, and I appreciate the invitation and uh, found everything extremely interesting, so I appreciate what you've all set up. I would uh, start out on three things, the legality of, of using the armed forces during uh, insurrection, however you want to describe it, inside the boundaries of the United States, continental United States. The Constitution asks us to maintain a Navy and raise an army, which seems like simple words, but if you look at them carefully, it is the Constitution said there was never an intent to keep a standing army. So that's had a, an implicit reaction over time, uh, and only it's really since World War II that we have maintained a large standing army. What legally then constitutes our ability to, to deal with the, the rules of the armed forces, they're laid out in, in two titles, uh, Title 10 and Title 32. Title 10 defines the operations of the active duty forces. Title 32 defines the National Guard. Now, the reserve component is considered part of uh, under Title 10 because it can be called up by the president. Title 32 um, has different aspects of it for our National Guard where the the governors are the authorities and the state adjutant generals are the leaders of those pieces of the National Guard, which can be somewhat confusing because the National Guard then is also crosses state boundaries to create units of sufficient numbers, particularly in the western area where the populations are uh, very spread out. In that aspect, uh, it's also important to note that the National Guard both Air Force and Army, are combat units. They are not combat service support units, whereas the reserve component has been built primarily as the logistic support units. Um, this has been done because it fits into both what the, the people wanted done as, to, as well as the capabilities that are needed in the reserves that are not fully filled out inside the active forces and can be found then and quickly brought up to speed. So those are the, the pieces from the Constitution and from the two titles in our uh, Congress has passed. The second aspect of it then is, so we train our armed forces to combat our enemies. Um, and our our ethos is to, to fight and win. And so you spend the majority of your time perfecting your ability to train, organize, and equip under those requirements that would against a, a lethal battlefield against an enemy that's equipped either equal to you or less than you. We hope it's the less, but uh, recently that's been more of a challenge as they are getting more parity. So we end up with a primarily a training scheme that is focused on this lethal battlefield of to train and equip and learn how to use all that equipment to the best of its advantage. So do we train for things like riots? The answer is, in the past, yes. Uh, we do have manuals that deal with how to train for riot duty. We have studied and, and equipped, have equipment that is non-lethal that we have put together. 
Non-lethal is always a challenge on how you're going to do that because a something which you use against a pregnant woman may be lethal, whereas against a very well-fit male may not. Um, so we've had a, a real struggle to find out how you, you deal that. So you see that in some of the things with taser weapon, for example, that the police forces use. We do not equip the armed forces with that, with except in our military police. But we have trained then, and I'll go back to the 60s, which is a question which I think will come up. Uh, when we had a fairly large-scale deployment of active duty forces during the riots, of the, and particularly in 1968 following Martin Luther King's assassination, we, we created formations and we developed capability to stand up against a civilian riot uh, and it essentially push it back without using lethal force. Uh, we ended up working those formations and then providing the equipment to protect the soldiers uh, who were asked to go do that. We also asked people at that time to do reconnaissance of the areas where they might be expected. So they, they knew the general layout, they knew the population, they knew the size and shape of the buildings. Has that happened recently? The answer is no. Um, and so training today uh, may have to, in fact, incorporate some of those capabilities again. But it is something which is used when the we have a need that's expressed by the national authority. In our case of the active duty armed forces, it's the president, the commander-in-chief, and in the case of the National Guard, it's the governors. Um, so both of them then have the responsibility to keep their forces trained. The last question then is, is how do you really assess your training and to make sure you're ready to do things? When we came out of the Vietnam area around 1975, when the last of our forces were withdrawn, um, and I'll talk to the Army in particular, but it, it's actually true of all the services. We looked at each other, and then Chief of Staff of the Army, uh, General Shai Meyer, uh, said, we've had a hollow Army. It was hollow in the sense that the people were not adequately trained. Uh, they were not prepared for what they had to do, and we were not using the effectiveness of the equipment that we had given them to the best extent. So a very thorough self-look took place over the next five years, and, and frankly, it was painful um, to look at yourself and say, I can't do this very well. What should I do to fix it? The force themselves wrote a set of, of manuals that started with the individual and it had a task condition and standard for everything we were asked to do. And then it asked to do it in the complied that with the environment that you were asked to operate in. So you, a task that you had to do in a jungle area in the tropics might be very different than something you would do in Central Europe against a Soviet force or against something in the Arctic against another force. So these Manuals then were written from the bottom up and then incorporated into the way we developed our training. And then each unit was asked quarterly to brief back to their commanders how they were going to do against those standards which were written. And we created opposing forces which were, frankly, much better trained and equipped than the active duty force that they opposed. And those forces then replicated in the 60s, 70s, 80s, the Soviet forces. So we learned their doctrine, they learned how to fight with them, and they knew the terrain. Those then were put up against the U.S. active force, and most of the time they lost. 
And we, we created something which was very unusual, and most other armies said they couldn't do it. And that is we asked the bottom, the soldiers, the privates, the young sergeants, to critique the senior non-commissioned officers, the commanders, the lieutenant colonels, the colonels, the generals. Did they put out clear authority? Do they really understand what they're supposed to do? And then when they executed, did they execute against those? So it was a bottoms up and then a self-evaluation and then a continuous evaluation against those standards and a very, very stressed period of, of learning how to fight under those conditions. So I'll, I'll stop there um, and be happy to answer any questions that folks may have. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Paul. Okay, we now begin our question and answer period. Um, I've told all of the speakers that they can jump in at any time and, and quiz any of the other speakers. So um, I'm going to go in reverse order, so I'm going to start with my questions with Paul. Paul, you uh, explained the uh, the rules in terms of the legal rules and the constitutional uh, constraints on the president using the U.S. military in uh, domestic civil disputes and disturbances. Um, but what I don't understand is why the Secretary of Defense and I think the Joint Chiefs have been telling the president recently that it, his ideas of going into these cities wasn't legal. Um, what kind of justification were they giving the president, and what sort of limitations are there on the president to use these troops? Uh, there is a law, uh, uh, the Posse Comitatus, which prohibits the use of our force as a police force. And so from a legal standpoint, uh, you cannot use your armed forces as a police force inside the boundaries of the United States. The exception to that is the National Guard, which can be called up under the Title 32, um, as I mentioned earlier, by the governors. Uh, but what they do then has to be done in conjunction with the police forces, the fire departments, the other uh, emergency response. So the legal authority, uh, which is is a law of posse comitatus, uh, it's very well known by all people in uniform. Um, and that's why very rarely do you ever see. And even in the cases of riots, no military person in uniform has the authority to arrest. You have to get a police force to bring them in. Um, and so that's that's the legal aspect of what is being referred to. And will that limit um, the president's ability to use these forces? And let me give you an example. Um, and we're going to go into your experience in Washington, D.C. in 68 in a second. But... Um, recently, the, I think the mayor of Washington, D.C., um, made a statement that, that he or she didn't want um, U.S. military there. Um, can she overrule the president as to whether or not military can show up there? Uh, that becomes a more of a political question, I think, than a legal question. Um, gotcha. And the District of Washington is, is rather different Special. than states as well. So... It's clear by by law that the president can use the armies. We all take an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States against, against all enemies, foreign and very specifically domestic. So if the president sees a domestic threat against the U.S., he has the authority to, to call people. He, he has to do it under the legal restrictions of posse comitatus. And, he, and it's only done very selectively when people think that things have gotten out of hand. Um, and if we go back again, the example of, of Kent State, where it was not handled very well at all, and the results was was lethality um, on a college campus. 
Um, and so it's a combination of, of an estimate of how dire things have gotten, how well-trained and disciplined the force is that you have that you're going to use against it, and what other alternatives do you have. And, and most of that so when it literally comes down to political considerations, not military. Right. So I want to now go to your personal experience back to 1968. So um, you sort of mentioned what happened. You, you obviously were instructed to take your platoon uh, to Washington, D.C. Um, you put on your civilian clothes. You were given orders, and then you did your reconnaissance. I imagine you went to the bars. You went into the stores. You checked for where the appropriate uh, places to make sure that there weren't snipers, etc. Um but can you explain maybe a little bit about what goes into uh, the reconnaissance, what goes into um, what kind of orders you would give your troops in order to prevent uh, lethality, and you know what? How do you? How were you trained, and how did you train the people under you to make sure that you would achieve your objectives, which I assume were, um, you know, minimize loss of life and loss of property in the domestic area. Yeah. Um, so the the unit I was with, which was a six armored cavalry regiment at Fort Meade, Maryland, uh, was on orders to go to Vietnam. The, in February of of '68, those orders were canceled, and the unit uh, was directed to do some very specific training to prepare for riots. Um, the kind of training we did was primarily formations and the use of batons and non-lethal weapons and protective gear so that you could operate in the formations that you would use to push back crowds. The, the, the reconnaissance was almost exclusively done by officers and, and senior non-commissioned officers. So the typical soldier did not get to do the reconnaissance, the leadership did. Uh, and, the, and the way we were told to do it is, is not to go to the bars that we might go to to actually enjoy ourselves, but to go to the places you wouldn't. And we were given very specific areas and, and our area was the Southeast D.C., um, which, if you know, at that time, go back to the racial discrimination and issues, was predominantly black, terrible housing conditions, very run down. Um, but literally, you could stand there and look at the capital of the United States on the streets where we were asked to go. So it's becoming familiar with the, the terrain that you're going to operate on. Um, in our military terms, we call that MIT, Mission Equipment Troops Terrain, and the time you have available. The way we got called out to do it, I found it was on a. We were a typical Friday, have a happy hour, go out on a date. Um, I was a bachelor. Um, came back in and was called at midnight to come in early the next morning. We, we were called on Saturday morning, told ready to go down to DC, fully equipped with our, uh, but dismounted. So we were an armored unit. We did not take any of our vehicles with us. One of the one of the troops actually did go down with their armored vehicles, but did not, not go into the city. Um, so we were going in as infantry, effectively, to clear the streets. Uh, we were recalled again, stood down, and then called back again on Sunday, and then spent the next three weeks there uh, quelling the, what with the riots in the areas that we were asked to look at. Specifically, the, the orders we were given were not to use lethal force, uh, but to clear all buildings from looters and destruction and to help the fire department put out any of the fires that were taking place. Sounds like a simple task, uh, but we literally spent 
almost 72 direct hours going building to building, house to house, floor to floor, clearing them of the rioters, doing that. A lot of CS, tear gas, was used uh, to do that clearing. No shots were fired, though we were all equipped with fully armed. Um, and the entire time for my case, there was only one time where a shot was fired, and that's where a, one of the uh, vehicles tried to run down one of our soldiers uh, who was standing on the street. Uh, he fired over the top of the vehicle to get it to turn around. So no one was no one was fired on by anything other than the tear gas that we had. So the troops were pretty well disciplined, um, and I said they did a, a very good job in very stressing conditions. A lot of them were draftees who were 50% of my unit was black. They were given the option if they were from that particular part of D.C. that they didn't have to go. They all went. Uh, it was much more of a, you don't don't let your buddy down. Uh, and I think it was pretty effective in terms of what we did. But I believe, from my own perspective of it as a brand-new lieutenant, it was a last resort call that we would use the active force to do that. Um, I want to change topics to your comment about reform and how you looked at the um, the army looked itself in the eyes through the mirror and decided they didn't like what they saw. Um, you know, the army's customer was the American public, and the American public wasn't happy happy with its armed services, and something had to change. Um, currently, it appears that a, a vast majority of Americans are unhappy with their local police force. Um, what can we have learned from the reform of the U.S. military that might be helpful in how we think about reforming uh, our local police? I, I think, one, it's a little bit more of a challenge because of the your descriptor, the local police. So there are many police forces then that have to take this on individually, but the basic premise of it all, and maybe the police unions collectively could do this to get together, is to... to to take a hard look at themselves, to ask the questions about why they behave as they did, what they were incapable of doing and what they were capable of doing. And, and then I would say you, you do the same kind of things that we did. You go back to the to the police from the young youngest recruit and how you train that recruit for the police force to the young sergeants, to the officers of the police forces and write out the rules, as we call them, the task conditions, the standards. Uh, and 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 to apply that then to the different localities that they they go in, you know, in, in the middle of Wall Street, it's going to be a lot different than it is going to be in the Bronx or it's going to be in in Detroit or Chicago, um, in inner city. And so I think you have to apply the standards that you write to the conditions, and that's what you train against. What I don't believe the the police forces have, other than SWAT teams. Uh, is a trained opposing force the way we did. It was tougher than we were. And and that's something that maybe that the police forces could establish within their academies is to create an opposing force that would become the, the rioters, the, uh, the shooters, and all the people that they're going to have to go up against. Um, so that's, that's kind of the perspective that I would take. I think it could be done. Uh, just to now contrast uh, some of your ideas with what James was talking about before about boredom, he said that you know the recruits um, can get bored, and that one way of keeping these guys um, not getting frustrated and bored is to have them do some meaningless tasks like polish their boots. Is that why the military goes to such lengths to keep a clean bed and polish boots, or are there other motivations? No, I think you have um, to. 
<laughs> Go ahead. Paul, there, really are respond. there are other motivations. Number one, we don't polish boots anymore because the boots are all made of a soft material that you don't polish. Uh, so, so that's gone. Uh, but the, the basic issue that people are trying to establish is the discipline and, and to keep things orderly when you're fighting in a confused and, and war is chaos, the same as a riot is chaos. So the more discipline you can have and the more order you can have, the easier it is. You know where things are. You know where people are going to be. You know how they're going to behave. And so that's the real motive for doing all that. Our biggest problem with the, with the training period is you run out of money to do things that you know you do, and then then you start using troops to do things that are you might have a civilian contractor do. Um, that's where real boredom sets in, when I mean, you just run out of the time and money. James? James yeah, I, I was actually sorry to... Yeah, sorry to interrupt before. I was just going to defer uh-huh. to the general, because you know, in terms of those motivations, but I think that um, I'd concur as well. Uh, training and, and preparedness so that you are as honed as you can possibly be and don't react in, in sort of spontaneous ways, um, whether it be in response to the chaos or in, in response to sort of being bored and frustrated and pent up. But, uh, um, yeah, that's all I would add to that. And, James, just on another point, you know, this lockdown um, is very isolating for a number of people, and I imagine there's an enormous amount of loneliness what is the relationship between loneliness and boredom? There's a pretty strong relationship between loneliness and boredom, and I think that speaks to what Greg was talking about before, that you know we are going to want to go to restaurants and movies because we're social beasts. We, we want to be with each other. Just where I'm at at the moment, Ontario, we've just allowed people to have a, a social bubble with two families with a max of 10 people. So for the first time in 12 weeks, I've seen my sister-in-law's family, and it's been fantastic. Um, we need that kind of contact. We know, too, that in the elderly in particular, that there's uh, um, rising levels of loneliness in our, um, in our elderly population, particularly those individuals that don't have, as you might expect, strong social networks. Um, and, you know, some time ago, Theresa May, when she was still Prime Minister of Britain, um, minted a, a new minister, a minister for loneliness. And, you know, the Stephen Colbert's of the world um, made hay with that and, and had some pretty good uh, joke time with the minister for loneliness. But it is a serious issue. It's, it's going to be something that's quite prevalent um, for, for people who don't have good social networks. And when we're all locked down, we might be able to do all these Zoom meetings and Skype meetings and, and that kind of thing, which allows the work to continue and allows us to connect in some way, but it's not the full connection that we need. Um, and so people have started at least to, uh, to appreciate and understand that. You know, Zoom is great, but it's just not enough. And we, people talk about methods or exercises they can do to cope with boredom or find a way out of it. Um, do people understand the rabbit hole of going into boredom and because oh, like if I have a kid that says they're bored I would say oh you know why don't you read a book why don't you go out and play do they not recognize that or they do recognize it um, how do they not feel that uh, agency um, or how can we encourage whether it be a child or an elderly person to deal with their um, their boredom it's really tough to do and when you make those suggestions to the to the child and you say go read a book go play basketball go and do something with your friends you know that those suggestions that you're making have worked for them in the past you've seen them work and so the quest, first question you asked about why aren't they feeling agency or why aren't they satisfying agency in that moment that's a $64,000 question to which I don't yet have an answer but what I do know is that what won't be an answer is you being the agent for them 
So if you just provide them the thing to do, then you haven't solved their problem. You might have solved it in the short term, but not the long term. And we do know that people who get prone to boredom a lot also have problems with things like problem gambling and particularly with things like slot machines. And what a slot machine does beautifully well is it maintains your attention and your focus while your life savings are being drained away. So it, it occupies your mind and keeps you doing something and even you know touching the buttons on a touchscreen or pulling the pulling the arm of a, an old-fashioned one-armed bandit um that that even sort of kind of satisfies the sense of agency um but it's meaningless and in some instances it can be quite harmful and so when you finish doing that you're sort of left with the boredom and still not any good avenue to do something about it and we know um, you know, more, more relevant to this sort of generation of teens that um, young people are starting to demonstrate, you know, not in massive proportions, about 4 to 5% of, of users um, are starting to show problematic relationships with their smartphones. You know, they're addicted to their phones. Yeah, for sure. And they're reaching, yeah, and they're reaching for them as a pacifier to boredom. And it works in the moment. It, it, it occupies your mind just like the slot machine does. But it doesn't work long term because it... What it's failing to do and what you need it to do long term is to help you demonstrate that sense of agency. And a smartphone's just never going to do that. Can I, can I make a comment and then ask a question on boredom? Um, I, the comment is uh, one of my – the only things I remember in this book, Poor Economics, by Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo, who won the Nobel Prize recently for development economics, is they have this uh, account – of the desperately poor people in this world. And when they finally get a little bit of money, the first thing they do is buy better tasting calories and then buy forms of entertainment to relieve their boredom. Um, and they do that before actually getting back to what we would uh, assume would be a uh, regular level of caloric intake. And my, my question is on boredom, why is it that as an adult, I, I think we all feel the scarcity of time, and so I don't remember, even in the pandemic, this feeling of boredom that we had as a child where you feel this expanse of time um, in front of us. Is that a stage of life? Is that uh, about us? What, 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 what explains that? Well, the answer is both in some sense. So um, there's a stage of life thing. Boredom tends to rise in the teenage years. And then it starts to drop in the late teen, early 20 years, uh, and, and it drops throughout our 30s, 40s, and 50s, and then starts to rise again in the 60s. Now, that's not to suggest that boredom's not present in those middle years. In a very large study done by a, a group in the United States, they had thousands and thousands of data points. Boredom was still one of the more common things that people reported. Um, it's just that we report it less when we're in our 30s and 40s, probably for the reason that you say. You know, we don't have a lot of time. We gain all these responsibilities, children and work, and we have to pay our mortgages and all of these other kinds of things. And so boredom drops off in that period of time. The second thing you, you asked is, you know, is this just a life stage or is it something about, you know, who we are? And the answer is, yeah, it is something about who we are. Not all of us are as susceptible or as prone to boredom. Um, and there are a lot of different factors that relate to whether or not you're going to be more susceptible. So people who have lower levels of self-control tend to be more prone to boredom. People who um, are a bit more neurotic, so they worry about the world a little bit more, they tend to be prone to boredom a little more. Even people who are sort of a little bit more narcissistic, um, and it's a particular form of narcissism, it's, a, it's this sort of 
feeling that you're, you're great and the world hasn't recognized you yet. That's, that kind of narcissism is also more prone to boredom. So there's a huge range of individual differences that make it worse for some than it is for others. Um, and, and as I said, you know, in our middle years, it tends to be less of a problem than it is in, uh, in the teenage years. And, and for some people, particularly at those, in, in those um, you know, later decades, in our 60s and 70s, what really drives it there is whether or not you've got a strong social network. Because if you do, you probably won't be that bored. Um, but if you don't, it can become quite a problem. Can you comment on alcohol use? I've heard that um, during the pandemic that alcohol use has surged. Um, generally, I, you know, I suspect that alcohol use was a function of uh, social activity and then people drink less when they're alone versus when they're in a group. Uh, but now that they're forced to be alone, I'm surprised to hear that there's a, such a surge in alcohol use at home. Um, what do you think is going on? Is, is, that, is that related to boredom? Is it related to depression? Is it that they're bored, they drink, and then they're depressed? How does that interrelationship with alcohol use? So I don't know because we haven't asked those questions, and I think there's probably some researchers out there who are doing that. A lot of people are jumping on this, this um, experience and trying to understand those kinds of changes in behavior. Um, it may well be related to, to depression. I'm not sure who it was who chimed in with a question just before talking about caloric intake. We know that in the best of times that people who are highly boredom prone will overeat when they're bored and they will overindulge in alcohol. Why it's happening now in particular, um, there, there's many possibilities. As you sort of mentioned, you might have expected that if you're on your own, you might drink less. But it's not just that we're on our own in the pandemic. It's on our, we're on our own and we have fewer things that we can do. But one of the things you can do is you can get people to deliver a 2-4 of beer to your door. And, you know, if it's there and it's in your fridge, then there are fewer things to take your attention away and occupy your time and, and, and keep you active and keep you engaged with other things. And so you, you, you might have just one more beer than you, you normally thought you would. I don't know. That's totally speculative on my part, but it's certainly plausible that boredom and, and that restriction of range, you know, you just don't have the range of activities that you could normally do might play a part in people drinking more in the pandemic. Okay. Well, let's go on to Bob. Uh, Bob, I wanted to ask you, uh, could you talk about some of the work you did on rain, uh, particularly after sure. uh, the day after Martin Luther King's assassination and how that was a good tool for randomness to d help you evaluate the cost of rioting? Sure. The um, So... The big problem in trying to assess whether um, riots have effects on economic uh, things like the value of housing or employment is that um, what you would find would just be a correlation because all sorts of things can drive housing values and these things might be correlated with the occurrence of a riot and there's only so many things in a statistical analysis that you can control for because you uh, can only get data on so many things. And so what economists do is they like to look for what we call um, sort of the equivalent of, a, of an actual experiment. Now, we can't randomly assign riots the same way we could randomly assign a treatment uh, you know, of, a, of a new drug. That, that's, that, you, know, you can't even conceive of that. But what, what we did in this paper was recognize that riots um, in the 60s um, occurred uh, often in response to a spark, just like the recent, riot, recent protests in response to uh, George Floyd. There's, a, there's a, something happens and um, uh, a riot occurs. So the riot in Detroit in 1967 occurred um, 
in uh, in the summer when uh, two servicemen came home from um, uh, Vietnam, uh, they went to uh, what was called at the time a blind pig. The police raided the blind pig, and it uh, you know it spilled over into a huge riot. We're looking at the uh, the uh, assassination of Martin Luther King, a horrible, horrible event that occurs uh, in 1968, in April of 1968. And what we observed was that in the aftermath of the assassination, riots occurred throughout the United States, but they did not occur everywhere. They, uh, they uh, did not occur um, in places that had uh, lots of rain. So basically, weather affects whether or not we see riots occur. Most of the riots of the 60s, you know, very few, I'm not even, I'd have to go back and look at the data, but I don't think any occurred in the month of January, you know, so they, so in early April, there were places, uh, in early April of 1968, there were places that erupted in rioting, there were places that didn't, and it turns out that places that didn't um, um, riot in the aftermath of the King assassination um, were typically places where there was, uh, was there, there was rainfall, and so the rainfall induces some randomness um, in the uh, in the occurrence of a riot, and that turns out to be really, uh, you know, in terms of the statistical analysis, uh, as we say in economics, it helps identify um, the um, the effect that we're looking at, the causal effect, you would say, of of, of a riot on property values. And then, so what do you think drives it? So there's been a riot in the community. There was mm-hmm. some arson. There was looting. Um, why does that, um, how does that disrupt a neighborhood and why can't that neighborhood repair itself? Why is it an, almost an irreversible, uh, catastrophe? What, what is, what do you think? Well, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a great question and, um, we're, you know, we're limited in our ability to really pin, there are many, many possible things that, that could be going on, um. Uh, my co-author and I, Bill Collins, we we think that the '60s, uh, you know, were, were unique. When you're looking at historical events, you always have to place them in their context. And um, what we think is going on in, in in the '60s is that riots changed people's perception of um, of central cities as places to live or places to go, um, you know, shopping or whatever it was. I grew up in the city of Detroit, as I said. Um, and uh, I went to high school in the city of Detroit at a, a place called the University of Detroit High School. It was located at uh, on, on Seven Mile Road. Some some of the listeners today may remember the movie Eight Mile, which is the you know delimits the uh, boundary of the city of Detroit. You know, um, before the riots occurred, um, uh, you know, I'm I'm my. My parents might go shopping in downtown Detroit uh, after the riots happened. I don't think we ever went, right? So, you know, some of it has to do with perceptions of the city. Um, a lot of, uh, in the case of Detroit, a lot of the, of the uh, you know, the uh, property that was, um, that ended up being destroyed was not rebuilt. So there were efforts to rebuild after riots, but basically what Bill's and my results suggest is that those efforts were incomplete. Um, we were surprised that the that the effects. Um, uh, we weren't surprised that we would get effects in the short run, you know, in, in the immediate immediate period. But we were surprised that they lasted as long as they did, um, you know. And and so it, it really must be affecting people's sort of uh, you know long run demand for those locations. And do you think it would be different this time? Before, um, in our previous call we had someone talk about the 1964 riots 
mm-hmm. in New York City, and they said that a number of the Jewish retail was destroyed and looted, and that they chose not to reopen their stores in those locations in the African American communities. This time, I'm wondering if if that happens. Um, are there more national change large box stores that would go into these neighborhoods that might make a difference and won't require I call it, the entrepreneurial capital necessary to make those investments in well I, I, well so, so to address that what i what I would say is one of one of the things that uh, you know after the after Collins and I wrote this paper um one of the things we we weren't planning on this, but one of the things that happened to both of us is that every time a riot occurs in the United States um you know somebody from NPR or CB, whatever it is, calls us up, right? And um, in, 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 in this case, what I would, I typically say, and I think this is true uh, for, the, for sort of recent protests, is that the kind of destructiveness that, we, that happened in the most severe riots in the 1960s um, is at a level that is not something that we have seen recently. You know, the riot that occurred in Los Angeles in 1992 is probably the most similar in that, in that regard. So my own personal view is that the incidences of looting and so forth that uh, occurred more recently uh, in, in, in recent weeks or even in other recent events like Ferguson, um, Missouri, that doesn't. That's unlikely to have any sort of of, of uh, in my in my view. That's unlikely to have any sort of permanent effects. It, those those events were are much much closer to the sort of the milder side of what occurred in the 1960s. I want to combine yeah, this with Paul, concepts. I would like, agree with that. They, you know, I, I've been in and out of the D.C. area. Mm-hmm. The riot in '68 literally destroyed. Uh, the capability for people to rebuild and people moved out. And I didn't see that area rebuilt literally until uh, 10 years ago. Well, I would agree so with that, what you're, what you're saying. The, the, the riot in, in Washington, D.C. is one of the most severe of the 60s. So what I was, what I was saying is the, six, the, the a severe riot like we saw in the 60s, that, that's a whole different sort of event. I'm talking about very recent events um, are not quite at that scale. Yeah, I agree completely. I want to kind of bring in the concept of white flight. Um, I was born in October of 66, and um, and starting in 1967, we moved to Glencoe, a suburban town 20 miles north of Chicago. Um, And so white flight is usually caused um, by events like this. I think what's unusual about the current riot is that where maybe in the 1960s it was more focused in the African-American communities themselves, um, in the Chicago riots that occurred in the last couple of weeks, uh, they happened to have been in the most prestigious areas of the city. Michigan Avenue was destroyed. Lincoln Park was attacked uh, right in the center of the most affluent um, white communities. Do you think that this would be indicative of a, of a potential for white flight from what had been the reversal of the last 10 years that Paul was referring to, where whites are moving back into the cities with this you know, do you think- well, I, I, you know, anything. I guess it's possible. I'm, I'm, I'm a little skeptical again that that, again that that's that's what we're going going to see. That um, you know, it's like basically asking the question. Uh, you know, would my wife? You know, my wife and I. We live in Newton, which is a suburb of Boston. You know, would we be? less likely to move into downtown Boston, uh, where we both work, um, because there was a protest in downtown Boston a few weeks ago. I, you know, I, I, could, I, I don't think we would. Um, 
So, but you know, but the general principle, the general principle that you're talking about, which is, you know, does the does the occurrence of a protest or riot activity does that change a person's perception of the risk of investing in a particular location in a city going forward, right? And if the answer yeah. to that question is yes, and one of the one of the ways you can you know you can sort of see whether that happens is again if you look at investor, you know, like again in the '60s riots, if you look at you know insurance rates. And you know, what does it cost to insure your your house or whatever? You know, there you're talking about a, a, an observable price that conveys a lot of information about risk. Yeah. In, in those cases, yes, the risk clearly seemed to have gone up because insurance rates went up. So, you know, we will know the answer to the question you just posed, perhaps in um, you know. Uh, Several months, we can observe whether, in fact, um, there are changes in um, in insurance um, in 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 the areas that you're talking about. Thank you, uh, Greg. My next question goes for you. In one of our first weeks of this call, we had Jeff Shell, who is the CEO of NBC Universal, and he mentioned that he held a meeting with his staff to figure out where they can open up Universal Studios, uh, a theme park, and he was given 37 reasons why um, it would be difficult or impossible to do so, mostly because he could not guarantee safety. And I noticed in the words you used, you never used the words guaranteed safety, but instead you said, can I make my customers feel safe? The distinction being guaranteeing and, and how they feel. How do you think about that distinction in the, your role as a property manager um, and your responsibilities? Um, the, you know, the, I, the, the challenge with this is I never, I guess I hadn't thought about it in terms of a guarantee, um, because it's, this is, it's, it's hard to, I guess, really know if, if you, heaven forbid, get it, it's hard to know where you might've gotten it. And so I wasn't thinking, you know, there's, there's no saying what might've, what might've happened. So it's, uh, for us, it's it's about it's again having the customers feel you know that they're all making judgments about what they want to do and how they want to conduct their lives, and you know for what we're trying to do is do do the best we can follow the guidelines that we're given, which you know which seem to change with some regularity. For and sure. So you know it's very tough. You know it's so again we we put our plans together we consulted with uh with medical uh, experts to talk about what what is the what is the best way to do this and and then our and then and then it's about people feeling comfortable doing certain things and we part of it we believe also is just it's there's going to be an issue of time you know the people who we we we've just started to test some theaters we opened some pro, we opened some theaters up on on Friday uh to start testing the protocols because you can write things down and then let's see how it actually plays out. Um, and, you know, we, uh, we, we're, we're, we're testing those, but you know, the first people that are going to show up are the people who, who feel, who, who are not being, you know, who feel very confident about their actions and their activities, but it really runs the spectrum. There's lots of people with different feelings about how they're going to do it. But not, but it's not binary either. It's not zero or one. You know, it tends to be on a spectrum. And with people, hopefully, with over time, people are going to come back and say, you know, I went to the theater, and 
and, and, and it felt it felt comfortable. I felt comfortable with the situation. It didn't feel like we were – you know how it is. If you, if you get in a situation and you're jammed in, you're like, okay, this doesn't feel right, right? You know, In this case, we, th- we think people will get there and they'll say, you know what? They manage it in an orderly process. And we try to think about literally everything, like what is the path? people are going to follow. How do you exit? And we tell people, you know, please don't make a mad rush for the door when the movie's over. Leave one row at a time. Remember about social distancing. And so, again, it's, I think it's about getting customers to feel comfortable that this is an experience where, that, that, they can, that they can do safely. And so there's, I think there's, there's local law, there are social norms, um, and there are businesses that can make their own decisions as to what they want people to do. So I know, for example, in my hometown now, you have to wear a mask if you go into the grocery store. Um, you know, we had a doctor on Charlie Schwartz last week, and he said what we've learned about this respiratory disease is that if you wear a mask and you clean your hands, you're going to be pretty, you're going to be pretty safe. Um, you've mentioned you're going to give um, cleansers for your hands and wipes, et cetera. Um, what are you going to, are you going to require masks in the theater? How, how are you thinking about that? Well, I would tell you right now, we, we haven't come down on a final decision as to what's going to happen. But again, barring regulatory issues, if, look, if the community says you have to wear a mask, you know, we're going to have to wear a mask. Right. Going in, you know, we sort of said, okay, let's, let's look at what the CDC guidelines are. Let's talk to the medical, medical experts and let's uh, and, and see what the industry standards, standards are going to be. We're not the biggest. We're the fourth largest in the country, but there's three that are significant. By the way, the gulf between three and four is a gigantic gulf. You know? um, and so the, we, we were looking to what the industry standards were going to be. But as I said, everything seems to be changing. If you're following the news this week, the industry standards are moving around. We're not sure what they are just yet. So part of this period where we, where we get some theaters open before we start to open the, really the entire circuit we're trying to get a sense for, and we highly encourage people to wear masks. We've got greeters standing in front of the theater handing people masks, saying, we want you to wear a mask. Um, and I've seen the reports. I mean, the, the spectrum, you can't, you, you'd be shocked at the spectrum of people because we, we're trying to see, again, being in this exploratory period, how many people show up wearing masks? And we've got theaters where they showed up at 75% wearing masks and theaters where they showed up substantially less. And so uh, it, it's 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 very much depends on where you are in the country. Um, different people have different perspectives, and so we're trying to to navigate uh, what is, what is a very challenging situation and trying to figure out how to how to best again protect our customers, protect our so we're trying and protect our our employees and and uh, create again create a safe environment. But it's not easy. Robert, switching to you, um, this economic downturn is like no other we've seen in, uh, in our data set. Um, what distinguished previous downturns was it was economic in nature, maybe a financial sector problem, a manufacturing sector problem. I don't know. Uh, maybe you lose a war. But here, this was a self-inflicted wound caused by closing the economy down due to a pandemic and otherwise solving businesses um, not being able to make it. If we go down your route um, of using this approach, um, I imagine that we, and it's successful, I imagine it'll be permanent and will be part of the nomenclature for how to handle uh, economic downturns going forward when maybe businesses will be less solvent. Um, is there a way to limit this to solvent firms or doesn't it matter? Are we just really just simply reducing the frictions associated with bankruptcy? 
Robin, I can't hear you. Robin, you may have your mute button on. Robin? It looks like I've lost Robin. Um, uh, why don't I go to the, uh, my final suggestions, which are ending on a note of optimism. I know that a lot of our um, calls can be slightly negative uh, as we think about the consequences of COVID, and so I'd like to leave on a, a taint of optimism. Greg, um, is, what would you say that's optimistic about um, that you've been thinking about that maybe we don't realize? Um, I, 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 w- I would go back to right what was the, what I laid out at the outset and what James uh, mentioned as well. You know, we are we are social uh, we're social beasts, <laughs> and we want to be together. And right now, if you're feeling loneliness or boredom, and and, and I experience it as well, um, more loneliness than boredom. I'm not bored, <laughs> but. Uh, but 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 I believe that once we get this under control through again treatment vaccine, whenever that period is, what we're thinking the world looks like now, I think is going to start to look a lot more like it used to look, and I'm optimistic about that. And I, and I think I think we should all be that way because I don't think that the core of our beings is changing essentially. We're just having to adapt for a temporary period. Bob, what about you? What do you to see optimistic about what's out there? Um, well, I. I have to say that I wasn't, um, you know, when when the um, the recent protests happened, um, I, I wasn't expecting the scale that they occurred they occurred at. But I thought um, that in raising awareness of sort of racial inequality and its history in the United States, and looking at the uh, you know, which is a you know a central issue of our time, and to see the uh, speed at which things are happening in response to this, that, um, you know, gives me, I, I felt um, optimistic about that. Okay. James? Yeah, I, I think that um, for most of our lives before the pandemic, we've probably never spent any much any time sort of thinking and reflecting on what matters most to us. Um, and boredom in the pandemic or at any time can force you to think about that. So I, and I think that's never a bad thing to do. So if we can take time while we're in lockdown, even though we're just starting to open up a bit, if we can take a little bit of time and reflect carefully about what matters most to us and how we might go about best pursuing it, then I'm pretty optimistic about that kind of uh, effect of, of this, uh, this event in our lives. Okay. Paul? I, I am optimistic in two regards. One, um, some of the areas which I just saw destroyed in 68 in Washington and Detroit, uh, particularly Washington, have been rebuilt and are have been thriving and, and continue to be. So I, I believe that there is a, an opportunity to recover and do better from where you started. Uh, two, I think that there's I'm optimistic that the destruction that we've had right now hasn't come close to what we saw in 68. So hopefully um, we're at an end and it continues to go positive. And and I guess the third thing is that um, I see an optimistic opportunity for the police forces to use the lessons of the armed forces on how to rebuild themselves. Um, We just have to be willing to listen. Okay. Thank you. And thank you to my listeners and thank you to our speakers for their time. Have a happy Father's Day and I'll see you next week. Thank you very much. You may disconnect.
Thanks again. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye.